Would you please take the Word of God and turn with me and your Bibles to the book of Exodus and uh, chapter 19. Exodus and uh, chapter 19. As you're turning there, um, in this chapter, let me give you a a summary of this chapter. We're going to look at the first part of uh, Exodus 19. But there's uh, three times in this chapter when we're going to see Moses go up to Mount Sinai and come back down. And um, in each one of those, God has a specific message that He wants Moses to communicate to the children of Israel. Uh, The first one, and we'll read uh, the first one in just a moment, but uh, really from verse 1 down to uh, verse 9, we see, uh, we could have titled this, Remembering their redemption, God says to Moses, I want you to remind the people of what I've done for them. And Moses goes back down, and he's going to remind the people of what God has done for them, and where He has brought them to, and why they are standing there at the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, then, uh, so he goes down, um, back down in verse 7. In verse 8, he goes back up, Moses goes back up, Uh, The Lord is going to speak to him, and uh, that's about a message about preparation. God is going to speak, and we know He's going to give the the Ten Commandments. Uh, He's going to deliver the law, but He's going to, He wants the people to prepare themselves, to sanctify themselves, to cleanse themselves, and to uh, basically set a border around Mount Sinai so that nobody would touch the mountain. So the mountain is, in a sense, sanctified, set apart. And the people are to cleanse themselves and sanctify themselves. And so Moses is going to come back down and tell the people that. And uh, the third time from, uh, so verse 14, he comes back down, delivers the message. And then verse 17, uh, and then we see that in verse 20, Moses goes back up. And this message is about uh, the, the congregation, that they're going to draw nigh to the mountain because God is going to speak. And there's going to be lightning and thunder and so forth, and the congregation is going to uh, draw near, and uh, Moses in verse 25 goes back down and uh, speaks unto the people. And so there's going to be, as we look at this chapter, uh, three times, Moses is going to go up, and then he's going to come uh, back down. And what I would like to do is really take each one of those parts and look at, I think there's, a, there's something of significance in each one of those going up to the mountain and coming back down. It's an individual message each time. And so I want to deal with each one of those. But as we think about a summary in the book of Exodus leading up to this moment, uh, there's a lot of things that we've learned about God. And the Bible is, is uh, God's complete volume of what He wants us to know about Himself. And as we read through the Bible, if we were to start through Genesis and read through Revelation, we, we, we would find that we discover more about God as we go through the Bible. What we've learned so far in the book of Exodus is, first of all, that uh, God is a God who delivers judgment. We saw that in the ten plagues. We also know that God is all-powerful. We've learned that about God. And uh, one of those uh, areas was uh, at the crossing of the Red Sea. The waters were set on the wall side to side. They walked on dry ground. Uh, we've also noticed that God is a God who wants to guide His people, and He has done so since the Exodus uh, by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. 
And He has guided His people everywhere they've been since the, uh, the Passover has been by the guiding hand of God. And so we've learned that about God. And we've also learned uh, that God uh, is wanting to provide daily provision for His people. He did so with the water, not only the waters of Marah, uh, the water coming out of the rock, but also with the manna that they would have for 40 years every day, even though they were, were unfaithful. We remember that when God gave them the manna, He did so to a murmuring people. You remember the message I preach? Manna for murmurers. Not manna for people who deserved it. Manna for murmurers. And so I think that communicates the fact that God is a, is a merciful God. The reason why I say that is because we get to a point later when the people are murmuring and God is going to judge them. He's going to send snakes in their camp on one occasion. On another occasion when they're going to be in rebellion, He's going to open the earth and thousands of them are going to uh, fall uh, in the earth. And, and we read those parts and we may tend to think, man, it seems really severe, but we have to read everything leading up to that. And what we come to understand is that God is very merciful. And when his judgment is exercised, it is always, it is always after an extended time of mercy. Now as we come to Acts 19, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 and read down for this evening uh, through verse 8. So Exodus chapter 19 and... Uh, Actually, verse 1 through verse 9. And the Word of God says, In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim, and were come to the desert of Sinai, and had pitched in the wilderness, and there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine." And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. And so that's the second time he's going to ascend. But notice verse 9, And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the, of the, uh, told the, words of the people unto the Lord. I want to bring your attention to verse 4. This has been, if you remember the first message that I preached through Exodus was, kind of the theme of the book, looking at the book of Exodus as a whole. And here we come to that, verse 4. Uh, he reminds them all that God has done for them, how what He did to the Egyptians and how He bare them on eagles' wings. And, but what is the point of the book of Exodus? And let me emphasize this again very clearly. 
It's uh, not about just deliverance. It's not about freedom. It's not about a land. It's about God bringing His people to Himself. Which is much more important than a land. Or just freedom. Uh, this I believe to be the theme of the book. The, he- the exodus is not about an exodus. It's about an exodus unto God. And so I want us to see here as, as they come to this place, by the way, from the very beginning, we'll see in just a moment, God had told Moses that this is exactly where he would bring them, and here they are. And so I want us to consider here, and the title of the message this evening is, I brought you unto myself. I brought you unto myself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your word, and we thank you that uh, so much truth is contained in your word that is helpful to us and Lord, we know that those things are written for our learning. Uh, Many of those things are a shadow of things to come, as we've seen in the manna and the Passover and all those wonderful things that point us to Jesus Christ. And uh, Lord, I I pray that you would help us to learn some things that might benefit us as we live today in the 21st century, uh, that um, we might consider the role that we have not only just as individuals, but also as a church to represent you and to do so in a way that would honor and glorify you. And we ask, Lord, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So we've learned uh, much about God. We've learned that God is a God of uh, judgment. He is an all-powerful God. He guides His people. He gives His people daily provision, even though they are uh, ungrateful and murmuring. And what we learn here in really Exodus chapter 19 and chapter 20 is that God wants to speak to His people. He wants to reveal Himself to His people, and that's a wonderful privilege that God uh, wants to speak to us, uh, that He wants to communicate with us, that He wants us to know what His will is. As we come here to the first part, as I mentioned, there are three times that Moses is going to go up uh, to Mount Sinai. God is going to speak to him, and he's going to come back down, communicate what God said to the people, and then he's going to come back up again and give to God the people's response. Uh, And uh, that's going to happen uh, on three occasions, but we're going to uh, focus, notice, on the first one. And uh, there is a progression, really, in each one of those meetings. The first one, as I mentioned, is one of... Let's remember where you came from. Remember what God has done for you. Now that you have that in mind, now that you remember what God has done for you, here is how you ought to prepare yourself because God wants to speak to you. And now that you've prepared yourself, I want you to come together as a congregation before the mountain. And as he's going to speak to Moses, he wants the people to see visibly. Now, that's going to be through the clouds and the thunder and the lightning that God was speaking to Moses. And God wants the people to know that he was indeed speaking to Moses. And it is going to be unmistakable when they leave this scene. They're going to say, Moses, we... We don't want God to speak to us. We're too afraid. You, you speak to God, and then you come to us and tell us what God has to say to us. But, but that's going to be the scene in this chapter. But I'd like to spend some time uh, focusing on the first part. As we consider here this, the first meeting leading up to that in verse 1 and 2, the Bible gives us kind of the, the, the timeline. And really this, this, this arrival at Mount Sinai is a fulfillment of what God had told Moses. It is the 
a testimony of God's faithfulness. Uh, when we notice verse 1, he says, In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone uh, forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. As we've noted earlier, uh, God puts a, a time stamp, but I want you to notice here that as we look at uh, this fulfillment, we see that this reference, uh, there's, a, there, there's a reference point to redemption. To redemption. You remember when uh, they were in bondage, uh, God spoke to Moses about the Passover and how the Passover would be instituted, and he completely, God completely changed the calendar of the children of Israel. And now this would be really the first month would be marked by the Passover. And so from their time of deliverance now, we are uh, in the third month since what? Their redemption. In other words, the point of reference through the book of Exodus, when he marks the, the, time, uh, the time stamp, is always in reference back to redemption. And so this is the third month when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt. The same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. And so we see that the reference point is redemption. Now, keep that in mind as we go uh, and proceed through this chapter. Uh, and keep that in mind that throughout the book of Exodus, uh, the reference point for God communicating to His people is their redemption. By the way, I believe that there's an application that we can make as well, uh, that God wants to speak to us and somebody say, well, well, why does God want to speak to us? Or why would we, why should we be interested in God speaking to us? And we have to make a reference point back to our redemption. Because we are redeemed people, God wants to speak to us. And we ought to be interested in what God has to say. So the reference point here is redemption. But also we see that the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. So this is the realization of a promise. Now, hold your place here and go back to Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, we know that this is uh, Moses when he sees the burning bush and God is going to speak to him from the bush that was burning but not being consumed. And there's lots going on back and forth. But remember the promise that God made to Moses in verse 12, Exodus 3 verse 12. And he said, certainly I will be with thee and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. Here is what he says there. Moses, you're going to know that what I am saying to you is true and that I have been faithful in doing my part and here is going to be the token. What is that? The proof. What's the proof? When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. So understand here, when we get to Exodus chapter 19 and they're finally there, Moses has the proof from God. Remember, initially when God told Moses, Moses said, uh, nope. I'm not going, or use somebody else. Uh, he made all the excuses, and in the midst of that, he would have to remember the token that God told him. Here is going to be the proof that I am a faithful God. When you come back to this mountain, you will have your proof. By the way, I'm reminded of uh, Proverbs 19.21 says, There are many devices in man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord... That shall stand. And so <laughs> when we get to Exodus chapter 19, this is not a testament of Moses and how great a leader he's been. It's a testament, a testament to God's faithfulness and to how great a God he is. 
Because all the things that we've seen about Moses, from the very first time he was uh, uh, really not interested in going, he wanted somebody to be uh, in his place. Even when they first get to Egypt, he's not even the one talking to, uh, to, 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 to Pharaoh. Uh, Aaron is talking on his behalf. And finally, as he sees God's work, finally Moses uh, steps up and, and God validates his leadership, particularly at the Red Sea, when the people, the Bible says, they feared God and they feared Moses. And so here we are, we have the realization of the promise of God. And so the reference point is redemption, uh, the realization of a promise in Mount Sinai. And notice now, verse, uh, verse 2, he says, For they were departed from Rephidim, and were come to the desert of Sinai, and had pitched in the wilderness, and there Israel camped before the mount. And now we're reminded of the road to the mount. In other words, it was not redemption, the mount. There was a journey. And the journey, we're not going to go there for sake of time, but let me summarize it. The Bible says they came from Rephidim. Now, remember, in Rephidim, that is where uh, God, they had wrought, I'm trying to chronologically work my way back, they had uh, won the fight against Amalek. And what we know about that is that uh, they were not strong enough. Moses was not strong enough to get the victory. He had to have help to hold his hands up. And as long as his hands were up, they were winning the battle. And so they uh, won over Amalek, not because they were strong, but because they were weak. That's why they won. And we also noted here, it was in Rephidim, that uh, out of the water came forth, wa- out of the rock came forth uh, water. Uh, what a picture of Christ. And we talked about that. And then, uh, before then, they were in the wilderness of sin. When they were in the wilderness of sin, remember, that's when they were murmuring and complaining and chiding with Moses. And finally, God says, I'm going to uh, provide manna from heaven to this murmuring people. Uh, before they were in the wilderness of sin, back in chapter 15, they were in the wilderness of Shur. And remember, in the wilderness of Shur, uh, that's when they came to the bitter waters of Mara, and God changed the waters from bitterness to sweetness. But before then, in chapter 14... Uh, They were at the Red Sea, and they experienced the deliverance through uh, the opening of the Red Sea, and they walked on dry ground. And so that's the journey that they've been. We might say it was not the the easiest of journeys. It was not the journey that was without trouble. Uh, But we know in Deuteronomy chapter 8 why God did this to them. To prove them. To humble them. Uh, to bring them, to really prepare them for this place where God wants to speak to them and meet with them. And so we notice here the fulfillment of God's promise to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. But then here as we come to verse 3, we have uh, the remembrance here. And so Moses goes up to God in verse 3, And the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. And so what I want to do here is I want to break apart this message and uh, look at each section and see here, here's what he wants them to know, recognize and remember. And the reason why he does that is because human nature tends to forget. We know that to be true in the book of Exodus because every time trouble comes, they say what? You brought us here to die. We had it good in Egypt. They don't remember what Egypt was like. You see, human nature tends to forget. It tends to look at the bad and tend to think at it as it was good and tends to look at the good and think of it as bad. That's been the pattern for them. Now, 
I want to make a point here because in the book of Exodus is we refer to the nation of Israel, but really them being referred to as a nation is really going to be found here in the book of Exodus first. Uh, that the idea here is that there is a common thread, the, the common thread here as they come to the mountain, the common thread for all those people is, this is important, individual redemption. God did not save a nation. God saved individuals who put blood on the doorpost. And these were every household that had the blood on the doorpost. They came out. And God, out of a redeemed people, formed a nation. Now, it's important to, to say that here. You see, they are called a nation here in our text, a congregation. Also, at other parts, they're called an assembly. And so this congregation that has assembled is based on individual redemption. Not corporate redemption. Individual redemption. And now they are formed together as a nation. And we know that there weren't just uh, children of Israel. We know that there were other people who were not part of the heritage of the children of Israel. Uh, now, as we continue here, notice what he says to them in verse 4. And notice the first three words of verse 4. Ye have seen... And then he's going to list three things that they've observed God do. And then in verse 5, he says, now therefore. The now therefore is based on what ye have seen. Because of what has happened to you, now therefore. And it's important for us, and I've made this point as we go through the book of Exodus, it's important for us to understand that God didn't just deliver them for them to be free. He didn't deliver them just for them to be free. He delivered them so that they might serve God. That's why He delivered. Remember the first request that Moses gave to Pharaoh through Aaron? He says, let the people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. That was the request. Not let the people go. They need to be free. It's unjust for them to be slaves. No. Let them go so they can serve God. And so they're redeemed out of Egyptian bondage. They're redeemed unto service. And as Christians, we know that we are redeemed unto service. We're not saved by works, but we are saved to work. Ephesians 2, 89 says, For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We understand that's settled. But then he says in the next verse, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And so we are created in Christ unto good works. We're not saved by works, but we are saved unto good works. And so the children of Israel here, uh, when they uh, come here, they, they've been redeemed, not so they can say, Hey, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. I can be free of everybody. No, they're free from Egyptian bondage to come under the lordship of God. That's what they've been free to do. So what has God done? What have they seen? There's really three things that he mentions that they've seen. First of all, he says, you have seen what I did unto the Egyptians. Now, I think this would be a declaration here. Paul is go or <laughs> Paul, that's Acts in the Sunday morning. Uh, Moses is going to remind the people of simply this, God's omnipotence. 
clearly through what God did to the Egyptians, uh, you have the ten plagues, and I went, we went through each one of those plagues. And we talked about how when they leave, they leave the land of Egypt, who before the plagues was the most powerful nation in the world, the most revered military force in the world, the most wealthy nation in the world. And when uh, they leave, it is a barren wasteland. And the army is defeated. And there's nothing left. And it communicates God's omnipotence. As I made the point that each one of those plagues was not only God's judgment upon the Egyptians, but it was also a direct attack against an Egyptian god, or could I say gods. And so God proves His omnipotence, and He reminds the people, you know what I did to the Egyptians. You have seen it with your own eyes. And not only after the ten plagues, but when the Egyptian army, uh, the last thing that they had... Uh, to speak about was their army and their chariots and their horses and their mighty men. And God, in just a moment, buried them in the, in the sea. So you see what I've did to the Egyptians. And uh, you could say, well, God is omnipotent. He is, he is all-powerful. And we've seen what He's done. And we, we can't deny it. And they are to remember that. And they are to teach their children. You remember the point I made that Moses told, instructed the people, God is doing this so that you might teach your children. In other words, God is not going to duplicate those plagues over and over again for every single generation. He is given the responsibility of those who have seen the omnipotence of, uh, the omnipotence of God to communicate that to the next generations because they may not see the omnipotence of God like they saw it, but God deems it sufficient that they just communicated to their children. And by the way, we still do that today. We ought to still do that today. Uh, we don't need a display today of God's omnipotence to believe God. He has already declared and proved Himself. We don't need another show. You know, and that's where people go awry. They say, well, I just need to see somehow God's display of omnipotence and then I'll believe. No, you won't. Because the reason you don't believe is not because God has not showed Himself, is because you're a rebel. Now I know that may seem, how many miracles did Jesus do? How many believed on Him? Most people rejected Him. They saw a man raise from the dead, and they still try to find excuses as to say, no, we didn't see that. You see, the hardness of man's heart will always be hard. God has already proved Himself and shown Himself to be the Almighty God. He doesn't need, and we ought not to request that of God. To say, God, you need to prove yourself that you're omnipotent. He's already shown that. So He said what I did unto the Egyptians, but also you've seen how I bear you on eagles' wings. What a contrast. The judgment of God and then eagles' wings. And He bare them on Eagle's wings. And I think we no doubt see them that uh, God preserved them under the bondage of Egyptians. But I think uh, the eagle's wings represent after their redemption how God brought them through the wilderness. How God uh, brought them through the wilderness of sin and brought them through the wilderness of Shur and brought them uh, through Rephidim and all those places. And God took care of them uh, exactly what they needed. The water, the manna, all those things, God just bear them on eagles' wings. And isn't that reflective, I think, of uh, the, the idea sometimes that you provide for your children all the things that they need and they really don't realize all that you do for them? 
And along the way, they keep complaining and they murmur and they complain and they complain. And uh, my wife slaves and she spends an hour and a half on the food. Then she sets on the table and the children's like, what is that? (laughs) Well, they'll realize someday how mommy bare them on eagle's wings and was patient and merciful. Because what I would feel if I cooked the meal for an hour and a half and prepared it would be, you don't want it? Then that's fine. I'll put it in the trash and you could go over your room and not eat. But my wife is much more gracious than that. God bear them on eagles' wings. And we not only see that, but we remember how the children of Israel were. Ungrateful, murmuring rebels. You remember what they kept saying? Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord, by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. They, at some point, they even said, it would have been better for God to have slain us at the Passover then we come out here in the wilderness to die like this. You see, he bare them on eagles' wings. Oh, the mercifulness and the care of God. And I mentioned this in the introductory message. It hasn't been documented. I'm sure it could have happened, but it's never been seen how eagles, when they have their little eaglets, the way that they... Uh, they get their little eaglets to fly because they're all comfortable in the nest and they do things in stages. If you remember, they, uh, they, first of all, they have their nest uh, as high as they can get it and the nest is nice and comfortable and the, the eagle, the mother eagle, will even pluck her own feathers to make the nest comfortable for all the little eaglets. Once they're born, they're nice and comfortable. Uh, They don't want to jump out. They can't fly yet. But you know when uh, the mother eagle senses that now they are strong enough to fly, she begins to take all the feathers out. And if they still don't want to jump out, uh, she then begins to turn those little branches up and she makes the nest uncomfortable uh, so that they would jump out. And so finally the little eaglet uh, decides to jump out, but he really can't fly it. He's never done it before. And so he sits there on the edge and he's about to jump out of the nest and he does no fine. He falls right down. But Mother Eagle has the nest way up in the air and so she sees a little eaglet and so she comes down and she swoops down and she bears little eaglet on her wings. And then she brings the little eaglet back all the way as high as she could and then she lets him go. And he begins to drop again. And if he hasn't learned fly, she comes down and she swoops down again on, on her wings and she brings little eaglet higher and higher and higher and then she drops him again until he learns how to fly. She doesn't do everything for him, but she teaches them through making things uncomfortable, uh, through burying them on her wings. It's not meaning doing everything for them, but giving them everything that they need to succeed. And that's exactly what God has done for them. It's a reminder of God's tender mercies. So he reminds them, remember God's omnipotence, remember God's tender mercies, but then he says, and you see how I have brought you unto myself. And here's the point of Exodus. It's that God wants to bring the people back to himself. This is a reminder of God's chief interest with man. He wants to have fellowship with man. He wants to speak to man, and he wants man to speak to us. Actually, that's what chapter 19 is all about. God speaks to Moses. Moses speaks to the people. The people speak to Moses. Moses brings the message of the people back to God, and so forth. They go back and forth. And so that's what God is interested in. And can I say, God is still interested in that. He wants to speak to you, and he wants you to speak to him. That is God's chief interest. How do we know that? We know that from Genesis chapter 3. Even as soon as man sinned in the garden, rebelled against God, and put the 
fist in the face of God says, I want to be my own God. God came in the garden and was seeking for man. Man was hiding, but God was seeking. Why? Because God's chief interest is fellowship with man. And here he reminds the children of Israel, you know, God has brought you from bondage. He's brought you to himself. And so he says, ye have seen what I did. And now he says, notice verse 5, now therefore. So at this point, the disposition of the message ought to be, wow, look at what God has done. God, what do you want us to know? Now, now, therefore, what is it, God, that, that you expect of us? Look at what God has done. So, God, what do you want of us? Any, anything. Now, therefore, here's the message. If ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. I want you to notice here, there's really three things that he wants them to know. So you remember, you've seen what God has done. Now, therefore, recognize why God has done what he's done for you. Okay, so why? And he mentions three things. He says you are a, verse 5, a peculiar treasure. He says you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and unholy nation. So I think they represent three areas here as we think about those words. First of all, he says that they are a peculiar treasure. That is they are God's possession. The treasure belongs to God. It is God's possession. And then he says, and ye shall be a kingdom of priests. That means that they are, to, they are to have in the world an intercessory role. That's what a priest is. A priest is someone who has an intercessory role. It is someone who stands as a mediator between two parties. That's what a priest is. The priests, in essence, through, and by the way, it was not just true uh, for the people of Israel, it was true even in pagan religions, that often they would have a priest, and the priest would stand between that deity and, and the people. Well, it's true for the children of Israel, but notice he's not talking about an individual priest, he's talking about a nation of priests. So they are to, be, to have a role of intercession. The nation itself, the people, the group of people themselves, Individual redemption, common redemption, uh, but nonetheless a redemption. That's what has brought them together. Individual redemption has brought them together to this mountain. So they are possessed of God. They are to be intercessors, but also they are to be separate. He says to them in verse 6, and an holy nation. Now, really the, the word holy means to, to, be, to be separate to be set apart, to be set aside, to be, in the sense, dedicated. We're going to see throughout the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, and the book of Numbers, the book of Deuteronomy, all mentioned that when certain things were to be used for the temple, they, these things were deemed as holy. Why? Used for the temple, or the tabernacle. There was in the temple is later under Solomon, but they were to be used for the tabernacle and for use in the tabernacle. And so they were deemed, they were to be sanctified, and they were deemed as holy to be used for God's purposes 
in the daily ministration of the tabernacle. But here he's not talking about a, a, a vessel in the tabernacle. He's talking about a nation of people. So they are possessed of God. They are to be intercessors and they are to be separate. The book of Leviticus is really the emphasis on the holiness of God. Uh, it repeats that. That's where we have the verse, uh, Be holy for I am holy. And if we are God's representative, he says, if you're going to be my representatives, uh, then you need to reflect me. And by the way, God is still holy today. God has not changed. And I know we're not Israel. We're the church of Jesus Christ. We're not interested in a uh, possession of a land. Uh, we, uh, our, our citizenship is in heaven. And so I understand the distinction, but we, we have to remember that we have a holy God and God still wants His people to be a holy people. Separate from the world. He says that is so, he says so in First Peter. Be holy for I am holy. You see, God has not changed. Don't buy into the Christianity that says, now we're in the 21st century. You don't really have to be holy. Come as you are. Leave as you are. No, 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 no. God is holy. And He is very interested in His people being holy as well. Now, separation, as I've mentioned here, comes from verse 4. I brought you unto myself. Separation is not just separation from the world. It's separation unto the Lord. That's what true separation is. You see, because when we come to God, He makes us separate than the world. You see, the motivation is not us looking at the world and says, all right, how can we be different than the world? It's us looking to God and say, how can we be like God? And when that's our desire, then everything changes. And people are like, man, you people are strange over there trying to live a whole life. Sorry, but we're pursuing God over here. That's the way it ought to be. Now, I could spend some time on each one. He says, you're a peculiar treasure, a holy nation, but... I'm interested in the intercession part. You're going, he says you're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to have an intercessory role. Now, although we could go all throughout the Old Testament and look at some of the ideas, I think that one man that understood that was King Solomon. And I say that initially, <laughs> early in his kingdom. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 8. Now, we remember, uh, you remember David had his desire, for, if you turn with me to 1 Kings 8, uh, David had a desire to build a temple for the Lord. Remember, he, he said uh, that um, I dwell here in a palace and God is in a tent. And he didn't like the idea of that. And so, by the way, God never asked for a temple. David decided of his own volition, I want to build a temple for God. And God says, I don't, you're not going to do it. Uh, but your son Solomon will do it. Now, when the temple was complete in 1 Kings chapter 8... Uh, Solomon, uh, upon the completion of the temple, he gives a, uh, a prayer of dedication for the temple. But I'm interested in that prayer. In other words, we, we get from this prayer his heart. What, what is this all to be about? What is this temple about and, and, and so forth? What, what is Israel's nation supposed to be? Notice 1 Kings 8, verse 22. Verse 22 is the beginning of... Uh, uh, this uh, prayer, he says this, And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and uh, uh, spread forth his hands toward heaven and said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee. And by the way, when I read this, it's okay to say amen every once in a while. Amen. This is a really good prayer. 
Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath who keepeth covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee uh, with all their heart. Notice verse 24. Who has kept with thy servant David my father that thou promisedest him. Thou spakest also uh, with thy mouth and hast fulfilled it with thine hand as it is this day. Therefore now Lord God of Israel Keep with thy servant David my father that thou promisedest him, saying, There shall not fail thee a man in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that thy children take heed to their way, that they walk before me as thou hast walked before me. And now, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be verified, which thou spakest unto thy servant David my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house which, that I have builded. Uh, Solomon recognizes that this temple here, as, as glorious as it may seem, cannot contain God. God is much greater than this earthly tabernacle. Now the prayer goes on and on, but let's go down to verse 41. Moreover, he's praying at the dedication of the temple, Moreover, concerning a stranger. Now, he's been praying about the nation of Israel and how they're a peculiar nation and, and they ought to glorify God and so forth. But now he addresses the stranger. What does he say? Moreover, concerning a stranger that is not of thy people Israel, but cometh out of a far country for thy name's sake. You know what that means? That if a stranger is coming from another country for his name's sake, that means that they must have heard his name. That they would come to Jerusalem and to the temple. Verse 42. For they shall hear of thy great name, and of thy strong hand, and of thy stretched out arm, when he shall come and pray towards this house. He's talking about the stranger. Hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calleth thee for, that all the people of the earth may know thy name, to fear thee as do thy people Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have builded is called by thy name. And so Solomon, he understood here what this was all about. It was not about a glorious temple. Even the temple could not contain God. It was about the nation of Israel being a people of priests. To be a people who... Uh, proclaim the name of God throughout all the earth and so that all the earth would come and say when they would hear the name of God would say, well, we need to find out what's going on in Jerusalem. We need to hear more about this God. We've heard about this God and His mighty acts and His, His wonderful name and we need to find out more about God. And when Israel went astray is when they ceased to be a nation of priests. They ceased to be a nation of priests. Which brings us now to those who are God's representatives in the earth today. It's not the nation of Israel. It's the church. It's the church. So I know there's differences between the nation of Israel and the church. But at the core, they were to be a nation of priests and have an intercessory role. And we... We also have an intercessory role. The Bible says we have been given, 1 Corinthians, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. 
We are ambassadors of God. We are God's representatives in the world. And the reason why, just like one of the reasons why the nation existed and God redeemed them, He redeemed them so that He could bring them to Himself and so that they could be a nation of priests in the world. And the reason why today God has redeemed us. Now what we have in all common is what? Redemption. That's what we all have in common. That's the common thread between every one of us. And we've come together for what purpose? To be priests. To be those who are God's representative going to a lost and dying world bearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Solomon says, may this place, this temple establish, may it proclaim the name of God so that all the world may know. By the way, that was the heart of David. You remember, it was not on this scene, but it was him when he was confronting Goliath. You remember why he went out to fight Goliath? The nation was defeated and everybody had given up and David says, who dares to rise up against God? And you remember upon what authority he he came in the name of God? And he says, I'm coming to you because I want all the world to know that there is a God in Israel. David understood what he was to do, what the nation of Israel was supposed to do. And today, here we are, uh, we have something that we need to do. We have not been redeemed from our, the bondage of sin and death. We have not been redeemed for the sake of being free. We have been redeemed, and as the common thread comes through all of us, we've been redeemed to be His ambassadors and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's those words. Ye have seen, now therefore. Ye have seen what I've done for you. Now therefore, this is what you need to be. We'll go back to Exodus. Notice in verse 7. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded He just rehearsed. He took those words of the Lord and he communicated them to the people. In other words, before we go and talk about sanctification, right? Before we uh, have to come together to the mountain and and hear what God is going to say, uh, before they do any of that, they have to recognize where they've come from and what that means for now. You have seen, now therefore. And that's where, by the way, all service begins. We have seen what God has done for us, and now therefore, we need to look at the big picture. The big picture. Would the children of Israel be happy about individual freedom? Certainly, I'm sure they were happy about it. But that's not what it was about. They had to look beyond themselves. There was no doubt a personal benefit. But God had brought them together. He formed this group of people for a purpose. And we have to understand today that God has formed this group of people here for a purpose. Do we enjoy the benefit of salvation, personal freedom? Wonderful. That's wonderful. But there's more. There's more for us than God has. And we must understand that. That means we must look outside of ourselves. And it's great that tonight we have missionaries with us. 
who at some point, I'm sure in their lives, had to look outside of themselves and had to say, well, we're going to leave the comforts of our home, our home church and our family, and we're going to go to a people who need to hear about the name of Jesus Christ. That is why the church exists. And let me give us a warning. The moment that we cease to understand that as a church, I believe is the moment that God can remove the candlestick from this place. One of the warnings that God gave to one of the seven churches was if you don't turn back, I'm going to remove your candlestick. What is the candlestick? Is it representative of light? We're supposed to be light in the world. And so the moment we cease to be light, God has the authority to remove that candlestick. What is that? The influence that we ought to have in the world. And God says, you know what? I'll set you aside. I'll use another church somewhere else. May it not be us. May we be faithful to understand. So there's a common thread in individual redemption. We are called to be part of a local New Testament church that has... The, that, that looks beyond its, itself for the glory of God. So may the Lord help us. Let's bow for prayer.